basically they just kill the ability for Europe to create its own platforms to challenge US ones, for example. Welcome to Aperture, a podcast where we bring you interesting speakers and interesting topics, and then apply just the right level of focus to get you the information you need, covering strategy, business models, technology, and much more. If you like the podcast, please check out our other content on apogeehub.co. Thanks for listening. For our podcast today, we have as our guest, David Galbraith, who is a partner at Anthemis. And the topic today is playing devil's advocate. The idea is that we talk about big topics, economics, politics, the climate, of course, fintech, but we do so through the prism of what people are missing or what they're not asking themselves. The great paradox of the information age is that the more information we have, the more we enter into reductive echo chambers. So we're here to ask some searching questions and maybe debunk some myths along the way. But let's start by asking David to introduce himself and the work he does at Anthemis. David. So at Anthemis, my role is to play the devil's advocate. And what that means is I don't come from a traditional investor background. I come from the other side of the table as an entrepreneur. And what that means at Anthemis is playing the role that's often taken by analysts looking for insights and opportunities, but taking it one step further and saying, well, what are the kinds of businesses that we could build or people could build in these in these gaps? And then seeing if those example businesses match the deal flow we're seeing. And if it doesn't, could we build something in the foundry uh, that matches that deal flow? So, so what I do is come up with insights, yep. look at market opportunities in those insights, and then where appropriate, actually say, well, here's an example business that could be that could be created uh, in this market opportunity. And how do you yourself stop yourself from entering into group groupthink? I mean, how do you know if if you're really spotting gaps? You know, like what information sources do you use, for example? Um, well, I'd almost go back further and say, what's wrong with groupthink? The, the, re- the reason that groupthink is bad is you get stuck in something that's immutable, an you know, an opinion that if it was right at the time isn't right because the environment's changing and what we're seeing is we're we're in a very disruptive period in human history and therefore organizations need to be complex adaptive systems like biological and they need to react to the changing environment so the reason you don't want groupthink is you don't want um, to get stuck uh, in one way of doing something when the environment's changing. And how do you how do you test yourself that you're not entering how do you how do you not slip into groupthink? So my background obviously was always as a designer, as an architect before as an entrepreneur. And when you're doing something creative, like if, if, if you go to a heart surgeon and you say, please, can you operate on my heart in an interesting and unusual way? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a good idea. Yeah. But that's what you want from an architect is to do something in, a, in an interesting and unusual way, to do something different. So creativity is about doing things that are different. And if you're doing things that are different, it means by definition, you're not in a groupthink mode. You're thinking about something differently. You're playing devil's advocate. And we know, if we look at the... There's some statistical evidence that backs up this idea of thinking differently about things, which is um, Jeffrey West from the Santa Fe Institute, that book Scale that that was released last year, he realized that cities outperform companies because cities have weirdos in them. They, they have people who question the group yep. think. So you need a bit of noise. You need a bit of contrarianness. And one of the things that I do at work is to provide a bit of that contrarianness and noise. Sometimes it's a bad thing because sometimes the, 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 it's not good to have too, too much of that. Yep. Um, but sometimes it's a great thing. Yeah, because you're an agitator and not everybody yeah, yeah. likes that. Yeah. And so Anthemis is chiefly looking at fintech. What are the sorts of gaps that you see in fintech? What are, what are people missing? What are people not investigating in fintech? Where are the opportunities that aren't so well documented? So in in some ways, fintech was an irritating term for Anthemis because Anthemis was predicated on the fact that 
capital flows are a bit like information flows. They, they are foundational. There are things that, that, that the, the internet in the US certainly was built on new ways for commu- of communicating, new information flows. And then you had fintech really was just the digital era version of existing finance. Yep. So, so the more important thing is what, what is what does the internet of capital look like? What, what do those? What do the capital flows look like when they're when they're internetworked? And that that's really what we're looking at, which is we think a much bigger opportunity. And what's and what and if can you expand on that? What what kind of what what do you think it looks like? Is it, do we have any? Put it another way: Do we already have some examples um, of the internet of finance? So, a lot of people thought the internet of finance would be blockchain. Yeah. Um, I don't think so, actually. I, th- I think it, this period mirrors exactly what happened with communication um, and information, which is that in the, around 2000, there were a lot of decentralized systems around communication. There was Napster, and then that created yeah. things like Nutella. And the whole of Web 2.0 came when that collapsed into not being a decentralized version of the internet, but looking at the applications that had happened around things like file sharing. Um, and then you got YouTube and Spotify and all the social networks. So I think what's happened and may be happening again with blockchain is that it's not the decentralization that was important. It was the idea of the internet of money. And I think the internet of money actually has appeared and it's it's the Chinese internet model. I think that the Chinese platforms are not predicated on advertising. They're predicated yeah. on payments. And, 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 and therefore, we're seeing something that is... Because advertising is something you do to drive money eventually to people buying things. Uh, a payments version of the internet is, is more foundational. I think we'll see that the Chinese internet is a, a more resilient yeah. and, and a better model going forward. Because it seems to me, when, when you think about it, having a model that's built on advertising has a number of flaws, right? Because first of all, you're serving the advertiser, you're not serving the consumer. So it creates a conflict of interest. Secondly, you're, it's a it's sort of race for attention and we've seen you know what that can do for, for the quality of news and sensationalism and so on. Mm-hmm. And it also seems to me that you're putting an unnecessarily um, small limit on the size of any business because if we, how big is advertising revenue as a percentage of GDP? Yeah. So I, so I agree with you that it's much better to have the internet built on payments, micropayments. But the, I suppose the group think now is that when the, the U, let's call it the US internet is moving away from, <coughs> is moving away from advertising to subscriptions. And, and my, I suppose my question is why does it, why does it, why does it move to subscriptions? Why doesn't it move to micropayments? Is it a function of the underlying architecture and the legacy of that architecture and the, the cost of that architecture, which the Chinese and they were able to, to leapfrog um, and get ahead is that is that the difference yeah i mean the, the the at the lowest level the transaction cost is much higher in the us when you link your if you use paypal or venmo you're going typically through you, your money is going through an intermediary to the credit card yep. company but the deal with the credit card companies meant that they were no longer allowed to promote linking direct to your bank account so the transaction cost is much higher. And so the only way of then selling media rather than paying people to watch it through advertising is to, is to bundle it into subscription packages. Yep. That you don't need to do that in China because the transaction costs are so much lower uh, and because the friction is taken out of the system where offline transactions happen much more easily through, through people's smartphones as well, that all transactions in China are happening in this fundamentally more fluid fashion, which is a bit like when Eastern Europe went straight to mobile telephones instead of landlines and had a more sophisticated system than parts of Western Europe. You're seeing, I think you're seeing the same thing happen with the internet, which is the Chinese model has gone straight to a more efficient model. Yeah, and, it's, so, and it will be difficult for, let's call it the West, and particularly the US, to catch up, right? Because without replacing all of the infrastructure, which is so, so embedded, right? Um, yeah. I mean, just think of all the terminals and all the everything that's been built around it. It's a very difficult thing to unpick. But that's why I'm going to bring you back to the crypto question, right? Because if you listen to, to crypto advocates, they will say that 
sure the you know the the US internet again to use that term was built on the wrong foundations but the way to get around it is crypto because the advocates would argue that it's nearly uh, you know it's near free um, it's almost um, completely divisible so you can really manage the, the most micro of micro payments uh, but you wouldn't buy that argument you don't think crypto is the answer to to the problem of, of rebuilding the right foundations for the internet well crypto as a in its purest form as bitcoin as 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 digital gold very great that's a great use case digital yeah. gold works crosses borders it's purely electronic amazing thing but the the latency in those transactions is thousands of times slower than the payment system that wechat has and the volume is thousands of times smaller as well and the theoretical volume is thousands of times smaller so it doesn't so I would argue that we already have an efficient centralized system that's purely electronic that works. Yeah, true. And I mean, that's always been my, I suppose, misgiving about blockchain, which is to apply blockchain to payments just seems like the wrong use case for the reason you said, you know, I mean, blockchain, maybe it will become much more scalable over time. But right now it's just simply not scalable enough to handle payments. And, you know, why would you want a distributed ledger anyway for payments? And so a much better use case seems to me to be settlement versus payments, for example. Yeah. And um, so just quickly on, on block, because I want to come back to the question of WeChat and uh, Alipay and so on. But just on blockchain, what, what use cases do you see as interesting for blockchain technologies? Well, they're the same kind of use cases if we think of what are the use cases for BitTorrent or things like that, yeah. these decentralized peer-to-peer networks that appeared. And they were actually largely obscure um, areas of security, or um, they, they weren't they weren't the use cases that people thought they initially were. Uh, they had some kind of network advantages, but if you look at things that were originally decentralized, like Skype, they ended up centralizing. So, I I think the use cases, if I was to pick one use case beyond digital gold for blockchain, it would be things that create resilience by being decentralized so it might be things like firmware updates for iot devices where you you make it very difficult to hack uh, a camera that someone's bought off amazon that's had a trojan put on it because you'd have to hack every camera in the world but those kind of use cases where there's safety in numbers they seem to be quite interesting yep and it's and it feels like we've gone through the hype cycle with blockchain right where so you know everybody was going crazy about blockchain a few years ago and now it feels like we're almost in the sort of trough of disillusionment. So it's almost, you know, contrarian to be to now be bullish about blockchain. And are you have you become more bullish over time, or have you just um, just or do you still see it as you know a technology largely looking for a use case? And well, as I say, it just feels very, very similar to the previous wave of decentralization. That yeah. I think most people are not as old as me that work in technology and therefore don't have the muscle memory of of knowing what happened post Napster um, yeah post BitTorrent what, what, and, and that era was wonderful that that era actually they paved the way for for Facebook and yep. for all for all these things so there might be so I, that's that's why I'm so excited seeing what's happening in China because it seems to me that this is this is history rhyming and right. just to go back to China then um, how can Europe and the US catch up with the, Chi- the big Chinese players like WeChat like Alipay like Alipay or and Financial so Europe's caught in the middle yep. between having so you know having no platform scale companies, and by that I mean there seems to be something when you have a fifty billion dollar company plus that it creates its own ecosystem around it, um, and and it becomes a self. There's a phase change there that becomes self fulfilling. So that happened with Google and Facebook. Um, Amazon's a bit different because it's obviously transactional, but if we if we look at Google and Facebook, which in the Western world dominate, uh, it might be that we see that the transactional stuff that, that China starts to encroach in Europe. So it might be that Europe has Google for search, and we might actually end up having a Chinese platform for payments, unless, let's say, Facebook has payments built into WhatsApp. And is the future of the internet then for you know, thousands and thousands of fintech companies out there? finding a route to market through Amazon in the US and and, and financial everywhere else. Then. So I think you need to own a namespace to, to, to become dominant in transactions. 
that's why I, I personally have a bias towards consumer side things yeah. rather than um, technology. And so PayPal originally used the namespace of email addresses as a proxy for a bank account. And then um, phone numbers became that proxy for bank accounts instead. So the contr- and, and the interesting thing is that the control of the phone number ended up not being held by the telcos. I, I WhatsApp has shown that you can, you can own that. So Facebook owns identity. Facebook entering into this space, I, I don't understand why it hasn't earlier. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think Apple is the natural winner here. I think Facebook is. I guess Facebook didn't because they didn't. Well, interesting how things have played out. But I suppose they didn't want to take on big re- regulatory burdens. I mean, it was a very, it was a very yeah. asset like platform, very scalable, and they yeah. And they didn't own the phone number namespace originally. Yep. That's basically what they got with the WhatsApp ac- acquisition. Uh, and WhatsApp does have payments in India, but only in India. So whether that will become more predominant everywhere, that I don't know. But again, the, re- the reason this hasn't taken off in the way it has in China is the, orig- the incumbents are there already. So it's, a, yep. it's far, far harder to, to suddenly make people buy things with their smartphones and QR codes in in Europe and the US than it is in China. Just um, on Europe, just to get back to that for a second, this isn't the first time that I've heard you say that Europe lacks internet age platforms. Um, and it's no, it's a big, it's a big problem. I think, you know, I think people like going into the industrial area without having any hits or Citroens or Renaults. Are you more or less bullish than you were before? Because it seems that the, We've, we're moving away a bit from the consumer internet to something that's a bit more industrial internet. And it, that seems like somewhere where Europe might fare better. So I, th- I think the, the fact that China has a different internet from the US means that possibly South America and Europe can now decolonize from being colonized by US platforms. So I think it's actually optimistic in that sense. that, that we, We've created a duopoly instead of a monopoly. And because of that, it, it it either means that Europe's caught in a vice and basically we're caught yeah. in that horrible space between China owning one half and the US owning the other, or that playoff means that, that there are opportunities now for Europe to do platform scale um, companies. And, and and they may not be social media companies. They may they, I, I think they're more likely to be financial. When we look at the financial companies that might come out of Europe, what kind of spaces are we looking at? Because I suppose there's certain things that Europe does very well that maybe China, that the US and China doesn't do so well. I mean, for example, they're both single currency um, territories, right? So whereas you know, Europe is a multi-currency territory, which I think lends itself maybe to startups that do um, things around currencies. No, I think Europe's more homogenous, homogenous financially than that. And it, what, one, Europe doesn't... In Europe, people actually do have the same currency across many countries, but they don't speak the same language. Yeah. And so what America did was it had a dominant, it was a single language culture, which, which created the modern idea of what popular culture and popular entertainment was in terms of media. So, so when you had media and communication, that, that works very well in the US. And certainly even in Anglo-Saxon countries like you know, Britain exporting pop music to America worked very well. Europe people don't speak the same language, but there are common standards for insurance across the whole of Europe, whereas in the US there are different insurance licenses required state by state. So you have a, a much bigger single market for things that are the language of money. Okay. Uh, so I, I actually think that the opportunity there, the, regula- the regulatory opportunity means that, that the financial, that single financial platforms for insurance or banking or things like that are much more viable in Europe. So the, so the regulators, I guess, be more proactive in Europe than in, in the US particularly, right, in trying to encourage new types of competition in, in well, I guess generally, but also in banking with PSD2. And where do, where do you stand on some of these reg- regulations? Are, are they helping or are they ma- making matters worse? There are well-meaning initial uh, ideas for things like PSD2, but if you look at Article 13, the copyright, recent copyright regulation, that's absolutely crazy. 
yeah. because the secondary effects are it means that you create such a bureaucratic burden that no small company can afford that so it favors only large companies so it actually plays into the hands of the existing platforms so, so article thirteen so true of GDPR as well. I think isn't it when you really? Yeah. It's certainly true, but but to a lesser extent. Yeah. Like you could you could in theory comply with GDPR if, as a small startup. It's really hard. It's practically impossible to do so to comply with Article Thirteen. So so yeah, I I, I think these regulations have been created by people who, in the game of chess, when they look at how. The, the, the effects of regulation play out there's often an initial effect and then a secondary effect and then yeah. a secondary the second chess move for GDPR and article 13 is catastrophic yeah it just favors it basically they just killed the ability for Europe to create its own platforms to challenge US ones for example changing gears slightly so so one of the more interesting companies in the Anthemis portfolio is Kinder. And so I read a blog that you wrote about Kinder. And one of the things that you talk about in that blog is just the enormous size of the pension slash retirement market. And it's not one where many fintechs seem to be focusing right now. Why aren't more fintech companies focusing on, on the pension market and trying to reform it? Is it just because it's complex? and? So, I mean, there's two reasons. One, one I think, quite a, a profound reason. The other one, quite trivial. So that the, if we take the more profound reason first is that most people think technology companies, because the word technology are technology. What we've seen with the internet is not, the kind of research and development that was coming out of Bell Labs or Xerox Park. What we've seen is commoditized technology being used to create new applications. And those applications have existed in mar big markets that have changed. So my devil's advocate role is to, I'm not so interested in blockchain or AI. I'm interested in markets. I'm interested in shifts in markets in places like mobility or education or retirement. And retirement is the biggest shift anyone can possibly imagine. So the, the, it, to put a number on it, the, 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 pension, the, the committed pension liability shortfalls in developing nations are $450 trillion. That's half a quadrillion dollars. So when people talk about, oh, a billion-dollar market opportunity, yeah. this is a half a quadrillion-dollar shift in money. And because of that, there will be massive opportunities. And one of the, one of the sort of more banal um, changes there is that the existing model of pensions, which, which pensions started when Bismarck introduced them, the idea was you got a pension if you outlived your normal lifestyle. And then it morphed into this idea of a long holiday after you've stopped working. Yeah. That's not possible now because the support ratio, i.e. the number of people working for the number of people retired, is, is, is a lot less. So you can't have people having a bigger holiday unless people paying for that holiday. Yeah. And that's why there is this shortfall. And the only way to do that is to shift from defined... Um, a pension that pays out a defined amount to basically you contributing defined contribution pensions where you, you contribute a certain amount and then you get whatever you put in back out. That's what's happening. And because of that, people will have to manage their own retirement. It won't be managed by somewhere else. So that's where somewhere like kinder comes in. Yeah. It, take, it takes something that people, people are not going to be able to do this because it's very difficult um, but they're going to be forced to do it. Therefore, you need a, a product like Kinder to do it for people. And just to sort of close that out, the, the reason why that hasn't been done by other people yep. is because most people who do startups are young. They're not pensioners, and they're not thinking about their pensions. So this has been overlooked. People, that's why people looked at... There are a lot of people who are working on this sort of earlier stage of that, right, which is um, now I'm making more contributions. I should be putting them into... To ETFs and and you know and vehicles that have lower fees and so there's a lot that's happening at the early stage of, of 
of of saving for retirement, but much less that's happening in the kinder space, which is absolutely no. That, that was exactly the the opportunity that Rianne from Kinder identified was on the on the asset management side, on the way up, yeah. the accumulation of assets. There's tons of stuff yeah. on the deaccumulation of assets, and making sure you don't run out of money, and making sure, as she says, you can retire fearlessly. There was nothing. Yeah. Um, and do you, do you think that we have a massive pension crisis? Crisis. I mean, the 450 trillion. I think. I think you said was the short for. Yeah. So presumably, there's at some point this is going to come to to bite. Yeah. Um. So yeah. W- when is that? How does how did how do we how does that happen without massive yeah. social unrest? Uh, probably not. But there there are all sorts of things that can cause social unrest at the moment, like climate change and pensions yeah. is just one of them. But human beings have been very good at getting out of trouble historically. I hope I hope they do at this one. But yeah, it's it's definitely up there in terms of things that could cause um, unrest. When people realise they're not going to be able to have the same lifestyle as their parents and that they're going to have to work a lot longer and things like that, yes, it could cause civil unrest. And so we'll come back to some of these topics, but at the root of some of this is is inequality, right? Because, uh, you know, plenty of people still will have large pensions and it almost magnifies the inequality, right? Because if it's a contribution-based system and... The more you earn, the more you'll be able to contribute, the better you are. So, so it will prolong inequality and magnify yeah. inequality. And the, and, and the inequality is not really where people currently think of it, right or left, in the sense that, you know, like Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, the Labour Party leader, his pension's worth about two million. Yeah. So, so if he was to buy an annuity that would pay the same, and he, I'm sure he wouldn't maybe think of himself as being that wealthy, but a, a lot of people that have these defined benefit pensions actually they're they're worth an enormous amount of money yeah, it's almost like the, the, yeah. the um yeah. the lens through which we look yeah. at inequality is wrong because we look at inequality yeah. in pay yeah whereas inequality in assets is much bigger if you include pensions. precisely and i yeah. think that's basically what we've seen is this big shift to assets and we haven't really many people would look at assets like houses and think oh these people are very wealthy because they've they're in the one percent and they've yeah. got all these assets but they're, they're not including actually pensions as being an asset if you've got a defined benefit pension just to get, just to enter into the topic of inequality, it seems to me that this, there might be a significant gap in the thinking, right? Because pretty much, if we if we're to be crude, you've got you know the left that wants to um, you know if we talk about pensions, they want to you know to tax people more to fill the pensions gap, to tax people more to redistribute more more money, and then if you take the right, they want to do the, the complete opposite. They want to get growth <coughs> happening. They want to ex- accelerate growth through lowering taxes. And cutting uh, red tape and so on, it does, because these opinions have become sort of more and more extreme. And and is there? There seems there's so much, you know, um, white space between them. Is the, is is there a middle ground? What what is the middle ground that sits between those two increasingly polarized views of how you reduce inequality? Well, the middle middle ground is to communicate to both sides the benefit of the other. So so that the if you're to if you're to talk about capitalism to people versus Marxism and say, well, actually, an investment bank is a good good example of a Marxist organisation because it pays its employees at the expense of the people who own it, uh, and technically, being in a rock band is a very capitalist enterprise. If you sort of phrase it that way, you can probably capture people who wouldn't think of themselves yeah. on either side of that uh, thing. The second thing is, and in, in so so on the one side. We know that that free enterprise and free choice about what you want to do as a as a job uh, creates wealth, create, creates all sorts of benefits, and we want to live in a world where you can choose what you want to do. That being said, it requires luck, and 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 so on the on the on the other side is this idea that you can have a purely capitalist environment and not look after people who are unlucky is just mad. Yeah. And that's how, and and, you, and it does create inequality. So you want people to create wealth and create opportunities, but you also need a safety net. And so yeah. we need both of those things. And that's why I'm a, I, I would describe myself as a moderate because I, I see things. It's complicated, like most things in life. It's not it's not it's not capitalism versus socialism. It's 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 what is the playoff between encouraging people to create things and and so and rewarding people for who who do things. But not punishing people who are unlucky. Yeah, and that seems to me to be the overlooked middle ground, right? Which is 
unless we grow the pie there's less to redistribute in the first place so we have to grow the pie but and um, so we have to encourage risk-taking we have to encourage wealth accumulation but i agree with you i think the bit that everybody neglects is the safety net you know universal healthcare provision and so on that um will 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 encourage that risk taking in the first place and, and not penalise those who aren't unlucky. Um, but, this, but very few people are talking about that, right? The, you know. Yeah, I think in France, I mean, if you look in France, which like, I don't think many people in France have a problem with a good baker's shop producing great bread and caring about it. And actually, it's a very French thing to think about, that kind of small retail being very, very good and very sort of honest. What the problem most people have is is with the sort of is, is things that aren't really capitalism is where you have big organisations that, that 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 create monopolies or or, or game things. Yeah. Um, on just on the topic of growth, that clearly you know if we if we're to tackle um, inequality, I mean so there's there's been no better um, system for reducing inequality than than globalisation and and. And capitalism, right? So I just want to read your statistic here, which in the last 10 years, according to the UN, 750 million people have been lifted out of poverty, uh, extreme poverty. And so so growth is really an engine for, for reducing inequality. And my question to you is, there's there's a lot of, of people, a lot of thinkers who position growth as the antithesis of protecting the climate, almost like those things cannot be done simultaneously, like they're mutually exclusive. Again, is that is are we wrongly positioning the the trade offs? If there isn't a scientific way to 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 remove that trade off, then we need to find one. So, so there are two things there. One is, can you get growth without consumption of resources that, if you consume them, you mess things up? Um, because if we, if we look at the the standard green argument, yeah psychologically what that looks like to a lot of people is how do you how do you stop consuming which of course causes issues because we haven't figured out a way for human beings to exist with with the benefits that have happened through growth yeah and also without it, consumption. It, 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 it amplifies that <coughs> intergenerational argument you, mm. you know the sense that this generation won't have the same uh, Benefits is the general, particularly as a large generation of baby boomers, you know. So they had big retirement pensions, as you said, right? Okay. And also they were able to consume as much carbon so, as so, they so wanted. You, so it's like, so it, it aggravates that, that sense that this generation feel, might feel aggrieved, right? So I'll come, come yeah. back to the argument about growth and yeah. why I think there is a model that works with growth. But to your point um, about what's happening with people feeling aggrieved, this is in developing countries that people feel aggrieved. More people have been lifted out of poverty globally than any period in history yeah and yet you've got people saying well hang on what about the one percent and the inequality and, the, and what's happening why a house in london costs an unaffordable amount of money well that's in developing countries and i think the way to look at this is the thought experiment that i have for this is imagine two glasses of water and one glass has got a little bit of water in it and the other glass is almost full and the water in the glasses is inequality and the glass with a little bit of water, with a little bit of inequality, is what most developed countries looked like. And the glass with a lot of water in it was what most developing countries looked like. Um, and then you globalize, which is you pour those, you mix those two glasses together. And of course, what it looks like is, in, even if you pour some of that water away, the glass with the little bit of water now has a lot more in looks more looks more unequal but, but isn't isn't that just another way of making the argument for a safety net because because i think the problem with that analogy is it's, it assumes it's a zero-sum game right and so you've just poured water from one glass to the other. no so no that, i've assumed you've poured some of the water out i'm saying even if it's a non-zero-sum game it, you still get the perception as you globalize that that some people in developing countries which were were insulated by being part of these nation yeah. states that were very wealthy, that suddenly that, that, that they lose out, and that's and I think that's part of what's happening in, but they in do, but, politics. But, but, but clearly, the 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 overall level of economic activity has gone up, and so the the challenge is, is not. That's what I meant about the safety net, because the challenge is how do you um, how do you how do you use globalization as a to to create living standards and make sure that you don't have produce too much inequality. 
Well, you, pro- you probably have to, as you globalize, you need to remove the, the, the existing pockets where people game the system. Yeah. So you, ne- you need to, st- well, yeah, offshore taxation, things like that. Um, so I, I think we, you know, we've seen a period of globalization, global trade. If you believe that increasing the flows of things creates wealth, then you have to assume it's a good thing, globalization. Yeah. But you also have to accept that uh, it, it, it has downsides for people who are benefiting from the pockets that were wealthier in the past. I, um, I made us digress. So to come back, potentially force trade-off um, between growth on the one hand and environmental protection on the other. Yeah. You were saying that you were posing the question of whether you, you can protect the environment and continue to consume. So when I, when I said that our, our sort of psychological model is that we live on the planet and it's this single thing, yeah. uh, it's a finite closed system, and then that we're digging stuff out of the ground, fossil fuels, and expending them and damaging the environment. Mentally, what that model looks like is a closed system yeah. uh, with finite resources. That's not actually the way it works. We're an open system. We have a bunch of high-energy photons rain down from the sun, and they're re- and, uh, and actually several times more photons are re-radiated out at, in the infrared out into space so the earth is is an open system sitting between the sun and the heat sink of space and in that open system we have an unlimited amount of energy the second thing is that we're sitting in an energy gradient between cold space and hot sun and in terms of the physics of this um, what it means is that we don't actually consume any energy Zero energy is consumed by all of the people on Earth. We don't consume any of it. We just benefit from being in this gradient. So this mental model of consumption is actually just a colloquial, not a scientific term. We don't consume energy. By definition, energy is conserved. This is not a new idea. This is a Newtonian idea. What we have done, though, is we have destabilized this open system such that it might create a runaway heating effect and so we could consume an unlimited amount of solar energy but we and and consumption is not a bad thing in itself what's wrong is the wrong type of consumption that pollutes or 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 creates global warming so we need to create a a form of consumption the right form it's not about the amount it's about the it's about the type of consumption and do you feel so you i mean there, there has been massive progress in solar, right? Um, McKinsey said that by 2030 it would be cheaper to use solar to generate energy than using mm. coal. But in general, people have become more skeptical of the role that technology can play in solving climate change. Oh, oh that's the way it feels, right? So I, I, I take the opposite view is that it's possible that I, it, we could take the negative view and say, look, there are too many humans and yeah. we should all die out. Well, yeah, the, uh, well the mal- too, you know, yeah, the, let's assume that killing everyone is not what we want to do yeah. because that's not a nice idea and 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 some people may want that but you know a lot of that that's a lot of suffering so let's just assume that's off the table and that we have to keep everyone alive alive the only way that we have got through problems in the past is through technological progress yeah. and so if we assume that the only way we can get outside of this problem which is pressing is through technological progress then if we have a model which is about conserving and efficiency, we're going to reduce technological progress. And that would have been a viable model if climate change wasn't inevitable. But if we assume that climate change, that we've hit a point of no return and it's going to happen even if we do nothing, then we can't do nothing. We have to do something. And the only thing we can do is create technological progress. And the only way we can create technological progress is through growth. So we have to consume more, ironically. But the only way we can consume more and create that technological progress without making the problem worse is if we consume in the right way through yeah. things like solar. So we have, we, we have to create the environment that exacerbates consumption, ironically, but makes sure that we don't do things like burn coal. If we're challenging existing thinking, then very few people are talking about increasing consumption yeah. but 
but it seems again that we've got polarization between the one people who on the one side people who just deny climate change and on the other people who um i suppose engage in false science right so, you know trying to argue for much lower consumption um arguing against nuclear which um it's very for me it's very difficult to make the argument i mean the argument <coughs> against nuclear the best argument that people make against nuclear is the waste needs to be stored for, for you know for hundreds and hundreds yeah. of years. No, but if we didn't have climate change, if climate change wasn't inevitable, we yeah. should be decommissioning nuclear power stations. Clearly, because they have uh, non-guaranteed but potentially catastrophic pollution risk. Yeah. But the problem is we have, but we know that they solve here and now the the, the climate change risk. So it's completely decoupled. If we didn't have the climate yep. change risk, we shouldn't be building nuclear power stations, and we should we should make sure that everything is focused on pollution and a sustainable environment in that way. But we have this very pressing thing, where we might need to geoengineer the environment. I.e., we might need to do some unpleasant, make some unpleasant choices to make sure we don't all die, yep. and then fix the mess afterwards. That yep. might unfortunately be what we have to do. Yeah. Um, no, it just seems such an irony that Germany, which has been, for example, such a pioneer in in solar, is now T- turned against nuclear and burning more, ironically, burning more coal. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. But just on another, you know, on, an, on another point, where do, you, where do you stand on the whole GM versus organic? You know, because I suppose we, we you know, it, it's, it, we'd all we'd all like to consume, I guess, fewer pesticides in our food, and so we can make the case for for organic. But it's, I guess, it, you know, it it produces lower yields, and therefore it's it's not really compatible with a growing population and need to feed everybody etc etc so where do, you, where, do you, where do you stand on that so there is there are like most people I do actually buy quite a lot of organic food but for for the <laughs> reasons do, yeah. that you don't want your children to be eating pesticides yeah. and things like that so parking that aside and not being completely hypocritical about yeah. what I'm about to say is I think it's complicated like all these things and if I take the devil's advocate environment is uh, argument I don't want my kids to eat nasty pesticides, but I've got no problem with uh, ammonia-based fertilizers being used versus or versus dung. So, so what for me I don't agree with is extreme view of yeah. organic, where everything is bundled into this notional idea that everything natural is good and everything mineral, and by natural we mean organic versus mineral, so organic food says all things that are organic are good and all things that are mineral are bad i.e. all chemicals are bad well it's not it's just not that straightforward and we know that if we take that extreme view we reduce yield so so one of the so if we switch to organic tomorrow two things would happen half the population would die and the second thing is that the environmental impact would increase i.e. we would produce more global warming um the, there would be certain aspects of pollution that would reduce, certainly. So, so we need to find a model that deals with the complexity here. And one of the ways of dealing with that complexity is to maybe create a less extreme version of organic that isn't based upon this tribal idea of chemical versus, uh, versus organic, but is to do with what are the real things that reduce pollution and what are the real things that reduce climate change effects and actually can feed everyone on earth. And so one of those, to give an example of what we might, to get back to like investing and things that we might invest in, is if you bundle, uh, let's say you put a bunch of IoT sensors in a field that look at how every single individual plant in that field should be dosed for pesticides, then you can create a bigger yield with less pesticide going in the ground. Now, if the person selling those pesticides isn't selling pesticides, but they're selling crop yield, and they bundle, let's say, financial product for crop insurance with a digital product for measuring the data for the plants with the pesticides as as a service on demand, then you can actually create a win-win scenario where less stuff goes in the ground that's toxic and, and there's more yield and there is and more money is being made. And what other areas are, are there where, I suppose, a populist slash, you know, to use your term, tribal view of science is holding us back from making major breakthroughs? And I guess also, 
you know, related where, where we need to rethink business models. Everywhere. I mean, I mean, you look at vaccination. I was going to mention vaccination, yeah. 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 I mean, and, and then the weird thing is that the reason they're tribal is homeopathy has the same narrative as vaccination. It just is part of a different tribe. It's like the non-science, back-to-nature yeah. tribe's view of vaccination. So if we can somehow reconcile these things, the narrative is the same. Homeopathy, homeopathy is just a vaccination that doesn't work. Yeah. Or and, has no and, evidence. And why did works, we? Why say. did we start to turn our backs on on science? For for, for real reasons that yeah. are a, a, a lot of scientific things like putting pesticides in the ground. There's a, there were a lot of good things and there were a lot of bad things, and and so people. So some people got nostalgic and said, maybe what's wrong with our lives is yeah. that we're all stuck on smartphones and eating food that makes us ill and things like that. Changing topics again so you wrote a really great piece on medium about designing smart cities what are we missing or again what what how should we think differently about urban planning so i mean i could go on forever about yeah, this yes yeah. having been an architect and sort of so if i summarize the tldr of that yeah. article was that most people have a tendency to fetishize technology so when most people think of smart cities they think of things being full of futuristic uh, technology. If you actually look at, and, 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 and I would argue that's a very primitive and old-fashioned way of looking at smart cities that came from uh, you know, Fritz Lang's metropolis or something like that, like 100 years ago. I suspect that one of the, the big trends and the things that can happen because of the modern type of technology that we use that's very, very miniaturized and small is that we reduce the amount of infrastructure and so my, my vision for a smart city was something that looked like a medieval hilltop town in Italy and not something like Fritz Lang's metropolis. I, we've, we've, been, we've been fetishizing the technology and assuming yeah. that smart cities look like some of the newer cities in China. And I would argue that a truly smart city looks much more like something natural. And... Because what a lot of people say about about the future is that the automobile was, you know, completely changed the layout of cities, and so the autonomous vehicle will do so again. And you didn't mention autonomous vehicles, and the and almost the if you follow the logic of autonomous vehicles, it will be that cities become more dispersed because we, you know, we're not worried so much about about distances because we can sleep in our cars, we can chat in our cars. You know. um, but your but your vision of an Italian hilltop village or city suggests we're living in closer proximity. So so. Multiple things. Uh, one, <laughs> yeah. one, 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 Start so, with the autonomous vehicles, maybe. So the autonomous vehicles. So one is, uh, w- we have a secondary thesis about autonomous vehicles, and it is not to do with urban use yeah. of autonomous vehicles. It's to do with um, them being used between um, towns and cities. Yeah, okay. And one of the things there we looked at was well, these so in in place of trains. Yeah, so, so specific, again, when I talk about taking insights and then doing opportunities and then come out with example companies, the example company or idea we looked at there was a dedicated self-drive um, lane on a freeway between uh, San Jose and LA. And if you look at that as a serious proposal, it, it does a few things. One is you can do it now, self-drive, without waiting for level five autonomy yep. to be real. So the level four, there's, there's, yeah, there's an it, enormous they've got, gap. They've got like lines of trucks to work perfectly well, right? Precisely. Yeah, yeah. So, so you can do it now. You could do a self-drive lane, providing you make sure that the non-self-driver cars can't go in that lane. So yeah. it's basically a bus lane, but with a curb, so that you can stop things going in it. The cost of Producing that is a tenth of the cost of high-speed rail because you don't need to do any gradient leveling or the kinds of things that needed to be done for European high-speed rail networks. So it's a lot cheaper. It can be done now. You can do self-drive now. And you can also create a system that's a bit like the... You can create a service design that's a bit like the channel tunnel where you park in a siding and then you switch to autonomous and then you park in a siding again and you wake up and you drive to your end destination. So you can do point-to-point. As soon as you do point-to-point with the one vehicle, self-drive, and you uh, 
you have this middle lane, middle zone where you're on a self-drive dedicated lane on a freeway, you can double the speed. And, and doubling the speed means that you suddenly can get from a place in San Francisco to a place in LA quicker than you can by flying. Uh, and that's the biggest short haul route in the yeah. US. So you could suddenly take a million people uh, that use a plane out of the sky and put them in, a, in, a, in a, an environment which would have, let's say, no carbon emissions because you'd make it electric self-drive. And you'd have created a wonderful thing. The second thing is that, bizarrely, that the model for financing this comes from France. So we think of Europe, high-speed trains, things like that. But most of France's motorways, the freeways, are, are, are privatized or semi-privatized, I should say. The, the way they're financed, let's say, by Sovereign Wealth Fund is that Sovereign Wealth Fund comes in and they're allowed a capped return over a certain period of time. And once that return has been achieved for financing a toll road, uh, it goes back to the state. In the U.S., uh, only less than 10% of, of freeways are, are, are privatized or toll roads. So the idea of taking this model to the U.S. in terms of financing and creating dedicated self-drive lanes might happen. And, and, so, and so this sounds futuristic, yeah. uh, and it sounds like something, yeah, yeah, great, but in theory. Well, actually, it's happening now. So, so between Beijing... much, more, much yeah. less futuristic and much more feasible than boring into the ground. To exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's a much lighter-touch way of doing futuristic transportation on a Hyperloop, yeah. and it is happening. The Chinese are doing... So there's a 60-mile 60, 60 route between Beijing and one of its satellite towns, which is going to have a dedicated self-drive um, lane on a freeway. And then just just one more question on, on smart cities then. So you, you still see us living in close proximity. You still, because I guess because um, there's, there's so many spillover effects from high urban density and, and also probably way lower carbon footprint. So, uh, it, well, if you look at... Um, specific examples of left, less infrastructure in a city so a lot of a city was designed around cars like we say so yeah. I, th I think in between cities could be designed around cars and bits of cities will be let's face it but the layout let's say the grid layout of cities was largely about people in cars not getting lost yeah we don't need that anymore because we have gps the, the concept of getting lost has gone forever And I suppose the grid Ideas. system came at yeah. massive expense in terms of you know, parks and... and it's it's not yeah. organic. Yeah, so, yeah. So, 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 but we don't need grid, grid cities anymore. Yeah. So they can look much more organic. They get, we don't need to worry about people getting lost in this labyrinthine sort of medieval-style town. We, we can build those again and they'd be practical. So that's a, that's a specific example. And we, they wouldn't need any, any traffic lights or signs. or All these things can go away. We don't, we don't need all this physical infrastructure anymore because of some of the smarts that are being put in smart cities. And can you... Because it seems that those labyrinthine, you know, old medieval cities, they're, they're like that because they grew gradually without design. And so can you design those features into... into future cities so i'd refer to the the essay i wrote yeah, which is a, a very subtle topic about how things are designed which is that when i was an architect things were, were planned they were designed as blueprints but actually if you look at organic the nature of organic things they're designed as recipes and recipes are, are sets of instructions where everything looks a little different and plays out and so that's not something i can talk about in five minutes but i do think there is a fundamental difference between recipe-based designs which are very natural looking and blueprints and for example when people say colloquially oh dna is a blueprint for life no dna is a recipe for life yeah and 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 it that's why organic things all have the same recipe similar recipe or the same recipe but they look slightly different because the way that recipe is executed over time in an environment means that it has very natural characteristics. Whereas a blueprint means that things look identical every time they're executed. Great. Okay, so last question. I couldn't, we couldn't have a podcast with you and not talk about Brexit. So um, we're, nobody knows quite how it's going to land, whether it's going to, we're going to have a long extension, whether it's going to happen at all. But I think like you, like me, you, you were a big opponent of Brexit. Not, not because you didn't sympathize with the 
people's sense of disenfranchisement, right? Yeah. Um, but this, a lot of the people who voted for Brexit, um, this won't be the solution to the to the problems they face. So it's like, um, in fact, it's going to deepen problems for for many of the constituencies that voted for Brexit. And so I guess my question to you, a little bit controversially, is: um, Should we give people direct decision making power? I mean, you know, the UK is is a um, is a representative democracy. Is but it seems like there's there's more and more of a push to give people in general across the world more say on, or certainly in the Western world more say on on significant matters of political economy. Is that a mistake? So I think you hit the nail on the head. There's a very big difference between a representative de- democracy and a true democracy. A true democracy is things like referendums. Yeah, We've seen what happens when you have referendums. They can become mob rule. And so m- most people like the idea of democracy, but mob rule, I think people would agree, is not great. And if we're sitting in Switzerland, Switzerland was always the place where people said, well, do- referendums work. Well, if you look at the... Switzerland last week have actually agreed to rerun a referendum because the information was wrong to start with. Yeah, the information was definitely wrong with the Brexit referendums to start with, but they weren't doing what the Swiss do. They were saying it was an absolute. There was yeah. no, there was no second guessing. In this period of change, where we're going through things, where we see Brexit is just a symptom of political change that manifests itself in different ways in Hungary or. Holland, Sweden, the US. Uh, Brexit was a symptom, um, and but it was a symptom worth putting it to uh, a true democracy, a non-representative democracy was clearly a big mistake unless people could have been told the facts. And that's why you elect experts. That's why you have representative democracies. And it, part of the narrative and the language you get from the Brexiteers was, oh, experts don't matter. That's yeah. not... That's the and, famous Michael Gove. Yeah. yeah and, uh, of experts. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's like, you know, not every, it, there's a reason why you have doctors training to be doctors and not everyone just can show up and say, we're a doctor. That's a, that's a form of representative d- democracy, yeah. if you like. But we need to do the same that we do with doctors where you need to be a qualified doctor to do something that we do with politics, particularly now. Yeah, exactly. Which is almost almost we're moving in a direction towards towards direct democracy at a time when experts matter more than ever, because precisely because society is changing so fast. Exactly, and at the extreme end, you've got the technocracies, which are too much the other way. And you could argue that China, as a country, is run like a corporation, where there isn't there maybe is too much the other way. So yeah. so mob rule versus dictatorship at the end of the day it, it's like you need you need something in between you, you need some way to make sure that the technocrats are are, are acting on on behalf of are making informed decisions and this push towards direct democracy why why did it come about do you think did, is, i mean there's an argument that the, the the people that used to represent us were more were better educated much older and those distinctions have disappeared because the the population in general, as you said, has got older, more educated. So one of the pressures is that they don't people don't necessarily see a big distinction between the political class and themselves. Is that one of the causes, or are you are you much more of the view that it's down to to changes in information flows and? Uh, Basically, the experts weren't experts because the world had changed, and yeah. so we had experts in old things that were no longer relevant. We didn't have enough people that understood the modern world. And so when the experts weren't experts, it went to the people who were also not experts. So the whole thing was a mess. We need new experts, people who understand the modern world and understand the political decisions that need to be taken. And how are we doing on that? Terribly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apart from China, that's actually making, despite people saying, is, is, is making a lot of decisions that look intelligent. Uh, but you know, I would argue that we need balance. We need, we need, we need, we need to have the right experts, but with, but with a, a lot of democracy to elect. The yeah, because if you I mean, if you follow that line of argument, I guess you could you could recast um, the copyright regulation GDPR in exactly as anachronistic totally. regulations, yeah. because they were they were put together by people who still think 
of the world in the old paradigm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we have industrial age politicians in the digital era. That's part of the issue. And there seem to be some digital era politicians coming to the fore in the US, but less so in in the UK or Europe, right? Or, or uh, do you disagree? Or do you, see, or do you see do you see potential that maybe I don't? Oh, they, they will definitely happen. I mean, yeah. the people that understand the modern world, yeah, because there'll be advantages they'll be able to. I mean, what we're seeing now is all the dystopian advantages of politicians that understand the internet through manipulating people yeah. through Cambridge Analytica, etc. Like, they're definitely not naive in terms of how to leverage the modern world, but that needs to happen in a benign way. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I think probably that's a good place to leave it, right? Which is. Um, is there anybody listening to this who uh, is does understand the digital world and wants to enter the world of politics? Now's your time to to use these tools for the good. David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. <laughs>